AI systems are being implemented everywhere around us, but how they function and work is not explained nor discussed with the public. I'm going to show you that AI takes actually a very different approach to being intelligent than we humans do. AI systems are not an automation of human intelligence, they function very differently. Inserting them into our world changes how the world around us operates. Undoubtedly, we discovered the most about the digitalization of culture over the past few years owing to the pandemic. The barriers that inhibited our access to galleries, clubs, concert halls, festivals and theatres left artists and curators with no other choice other than to rethink how we create and consume different art forms in our society. Unsurprisingly, as the Cultural Institute of Germany, this topic was of particular importance and interest to us. We thoroughly enjoyed discovering new artists as a result, in particular those immersed in AI. As our guest speaker for today's episode, Mercedes Buns, aptly put in a speech at Brown University, Whatever your take on technology is, non-human, non-human made, or even inhuman, I'm sure we can agree that the recent development is transforming our being with technology, and with it, contemporary discourses. Artificial intelligence, aka AI, has become somewhat a buzzword in the cultural sphere, from literary translations to AI gallery exhibitions. What makes it so special is that it has managed to transform how we think of and digest science, particularly for those who hear four-dimensional black hole and just shudder. Artificial intelligence has been a fantastic portal in making scientific developments and teachings more accessible and, dare I say it, more fun. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. I'm your host, Lucy Rowan. At the end of November, we invited Professor Mercedes Buns to join us for our second Goethe annual lecture to celebrate 60 years of the Goethe Institute London. For today's episode, you can listen to her talk, The Culture of Artificial Intelligence, which explored the particular power of AI systems using work from contemporary artists to reveal the human misunderstanding regarding AI. The talk was moderated by Ava Jaeger, the Curator of Arts Technologies at the Serpentine Gallery. Mercedes is a Professor in Digital Culture and Society at the Department of Digital Humanities, King's College London. She studied philosophy, art history and media studies at the FU Berlin and the Bauhaus University Weimar. She wrote her thesis on the history of the internet driven by a deep curiosity about digital technology. Until today, she has not been disappointed by the transforming field that is digital technology, which provides her reliably with new aspects to think about constantly. At the moment, that is artificial intelligence and machine learning. Delving into the topics, Mercedes co-leads the Creative AI Lab, a collaboration with the Serpentine Gallery London. 
The aim of the lab is to surface this back-end knowledge and link it to wider artistic and curational practices in order to overcome the existing black box narratives. Through the lens of art making, the lab produces knowledge for cultural institutions, artists, engineers and researchers on how to engage AI, ML as media. Additionally, the lab aims to develop institutional capacities to engage with these media for the benefit of the wider cultural sector. Now, over to Mercedes. A lot of what you hear today, I owe research with the Creative AI Lab, which is a collaboration of King's College London and the Serpentine and a whole group. Uh, and all the knowledge that we gained in the last years really um, is sort of woven into. So you actually don't see me standing here, but like five or six people who work on this topic together. But I'd like to start um, with a question. Where would you situate contemporary artificial intelligence in which fields? And can I have a show of hands, please? Um, who would mainly situate it in computer science? Okay, quite a lot. Who in economy and who in culture? Oh, that's quite good. You are very positive to um, do it in culture. I did a quick check. And um, if you look online, it is very clear that maybe it's mainly computer science and economy. And by the end of this talk, I want to take us all that we have a bigger show of arms and everybody is for culture. Uh, you can see, I mean, I have a research browser, non-personalized, and I checked that. Um, and if you type in I and economy, then uh, you get a lot of hits. There are books out, there are studies out. Um, there is uh, McKenzie studies and everything what's going on. So there are a lot of hits that seem relevant. When you type in AI in culture, you still get a lot of hits. But those first hits you get are the cultural benefits of artificial intelligence in the enterprise or understand the importance of building an AI-ready culture in an organization or building AI culture in organization. So again, you have the perspective of economy looking at AI mentioning culture. Funnily enough, the second hit is the course I teach with uh, my colleague Kate at King's College London AI Culture and Society. That we position it so strongly in economy and that the public discourse sort of looks at it there is a bit surprising if you look at the statistics. Um, I um, looked at a 2021 McKinsey survey. Um, they surveyed 1,500 businesses and the role of AI in their company was to question and 27% only said up to 5% of their earnings before tax um, are due to AI. So this is really a very tiny amount and it gets even smaller if you look at the job postings. The US is that country in which we have the most AI companies being founded, but the labor market for AI is actually quite small, despite that there's a very big hype about economy and AI. So um, we situated in computer science and economy most of the time because we imagine AI very much like a second industrial revolution. Like machines replacing physical labor, AI systems will replace mental labor, that's what we think, paying attention, analyzing information. Artificial intelligence will automate tasks for which human intelligence is needed, driving, writing, playing Go or chess, analyzing medical images, or trying to ruin or rule the world. This is actually something that uh, has made it very much into mainstream culture, uh, how uh, we sort of negotiate AI as soon as we imagine it. We imagine 
that it wants to take the world over and away from us. And it's quite interesting if you then move and speak to uh, scientists or if you ever um, are actually present when an AI neural network is uh, trying to be brought into life uh, and you try to run it so that it actually works. These things are very fragile. And if you look at these, it's quite surprising, actually. They, they don't really fit together with the reality. Uh, and it's not, not so surprising that, therefore, AI researchers, and here we have Jan Lecun, who's the director of AI uh, at Facebook, said the nice uh, quote, the desire to take over the world is not correlated with intelligence. It is correlated with testosterone. And I think he has a point here. Um, so... I want to move away from economy and I also want a way that artificial intelligence is a human intelligence. So I'd like to take us on a journey in this talk uh, and think of it as artificial intelligence, that it is wrongly thought of as if it would be a human. And um, it is actually quite convenient just to think of it as a human, because if AI is like human intelligence, the future is quite certain because not much will change, right? So there is a lot of human intelligence in the world and in this room. But um, if AI is the same as we are, nothing will change. But what if artificial intelligence is not the same as human intelligence, just faster? What if it is much more interesting? And I'm going to show you that AI takes actually a very different approach to being intelligent than we humans do. So how is the technology working? Um, you have to know that for a very, very long time, computer science struggled to code the analysis of language or images. So we call this human symbolic information. That is what meaning is, images, language, symbols. And they are terribly ambiguous. So um, for computer science over the years who tried to code artificial intelligence, it was really hard and nearly impossible. And they made a lot of mistakes. It is the case because if, for example, a computer looks at an image, it sees this. It just sees noise, even if there's an image of things. And it can't find patterns unless we program it to find the patterns. So in the beginning, we tried, for example, to make it recognize faces. And faces are, you think, quite an easy gadget because, you know, eyes and mouth and nose are normally in the same constellation. And they're typical skin tones, like... There's pink skin, there's white skin, there is maybe a bit sunburned red skin, there are brown colors of skin, there are black colors of skin, there's a different shades, but there's a skin shade. So you can code the AI to say, okay, find the skin shade in this image and then you can look if it's a face. But what is when the AI sees this? And that is where the ambiguity comes in. And we have this not just with images, we have the same problem a lot of times with language. So around 2015, a bit earlier, computer scientists made new progress with a different approach, uh, machine learning. It's much older than 2014, 2015, but it came onto a new stage around that time. So it's actually not very long ago that we see really a revolution in uh, artificial intelligence here. The approach does not program a computer to follow rules. So there is no coder who programs the rules. Instead, computer scientists teach the computer to learn its own rules from analyzing large amounts of data. So, yeah, where do we take this data from? Of course, 
the internet. Uh, I don't think machine intelligence would have been anywhere without the internet. Uh, often data sets are simply created by downloading images and massive amounts of images from the internet or text to create really large data sets. And these data sets are then used to train the machines to see or understand things. Using those large data sets, the machine learning approach allows computer science to enter a new dimension, the calculation of meaning. Which data AI systems learn from, however, is highly relevant. What goes into the training of a neural network decides about the outcome. Machine learning systems can only calculate meaning they have learned about, and I brought an example with me, a work by the artist and researcher Memo Etkin, who said about his artwork, an artificial neural network looks out onto the world and tries to make sense of what it is seeing, but it can only see through the filter of what it already knows. So here you have uh, two um, monitors, so to speak. Uh, on the left side, you will see in a second the input, so what the camera sees. And on the right side, you see an artificial intelligence um, gun that has been trained by oil paintings. So it interprets everything that comes in as if it would be an oil painting. So uh, the full video is longer. Uh, you can look it up on his webpage. Uh, it's, it's a super great video. And I think it explains pretty well what is happening uh, in the back end of an AI artwork or one type of it. What is clear when looking at this AI systems take an input and link it to data they were trained on. But what misunderstandings arise from these weird way of learning? At times, AI systems learn, for example, the wrong things. So uh, in the next example, not an artwork, um, there was an AI trained to identify a dumbbell. After training, the researchers checked and said, okay, AI, show me what you think a dumbbell looks like. And this is what it came up with. Now you can see it obviously didn't understand that the arm, so it, it obviously said, just looked at a lot of images where people use dumbbells and it thought the arm was a part of the dumbbell and couldn't decontextualize that it is actually a part of the human. But uh, researchers, yeah, thought it this probably because it had predominantly seen a dumbbell being used. Understanding the importance of training and the easy way in which mistakes can be made here um, becomes apparent. In a world full of AI systems, we need to know what kind of computational mistakes we need to be aware of. Typical mistakes as an AI learns statistically by finding patterns in data examples are patterns can confuse the AI. And I love mistakes AIs make. It's one of my biggest hobbies and I also write about it. So I brought two. So patterns can confuse it. This is from a paper that came out at the University of Tübingen. Uh, they made a test and looked at the ImageNet data set and put in a texture and showed it an Indian elephant skin and the AI was 81% sure it is an Indian elephant. Then it showed them a tabby cat and the AI was 71% sure it's a tabby cat. And then they showed it a cat in an Indian elephant texture and the AI is 63% sure this is actually an elephant. The second idea it has, it's an injury. And the third idea it has, it might be a black swan. A, a cat doesn't show up. And the reason for this is, of course, is that the AI is really uh, struggles to identify abstract forms. 
It learns from patterns and it creates forms out of patterns. So it sees the world really very different than humans do. So your neural networks or machine learning systems are very easily confused by texture. The second thing is existing patterns are overinterpreted and amplify stereotypes. Um, for example, this year we saw a rise of generative AI. Some of you might have played around with it a little. And generative AI are systems that create images or texts from an input of keywords or a prompt. So I'm going to do a little live uh, play here because I think we all want to see uh, how an AI actually generates images, right? So this is a website which is for free on the internet. All of you can go there. And um, I programmed it. I want two images. And I want to have an image. Normally, you type in something more complex. Woman uh, at home. Okay, so this is fine. Um, it has seen a lot of pictures of women and a lot of pictures of women at home. So it's quite sure these are clearly identifiable artificial images. Okay, now let's look at the same thing for a man. Man at home. Right, men have no home, obviously. I'm sorry to tell you that. They live in a magazine. Um, and this is quite mean, right? You can see the stereotypes here coming up that, you know, withdraw men from having a home where they can feel happy. They need always to feel, I mean, yeah, as if they're out in the world. So there's a certain problem with training AIs because stereotypes that we have before are just amplified um, through the AI system. So an artwork that sort of plays around with the stereotypes that we find in AI is uh, Trevor Packlins and Kate Crawford's ImageNet Roulette. They work with a popular image set that a lot of AI researchers used. It's normally used for object recognition. And um, they uploaded in that they used the person category. So what, what was possible for uh, a few uh, months at the time when it was online you could upload your own image or other images and the AI would identify you and tell you what you are. Um, I was a nun. Other people were other things. Um, but it's quite interesting how it worked typical. So yeah, you all saw it. Michael Goff is uh, an anchor. Boris Johnson is a biographer. And Jacob Rees-Mogg is an oligarch. And this is Obama's... Uh, but what is very typical, for example, um, is that, of course, the only woman in the room is a sick person, right? Um, and Obama is a demagogue. So the only colored person in the room is also misidentified completely. And that is a big problem that we have um, with this image set, um, ImageNet data set. Um, the journalist Lil Uzi Hurt tried it out and he put in two very different images of himself, one in a more informal um, sort of dress and one in a very formal dress, but the AI could just recognize him not as an occupation as it comes up with white people, but he's a black person. Um, so that artwork showed very perfectly that if an AI is trained in the wrong way, it will see the wrong things. And it was publicly available and I thought it was really good that people could try out themselves how these things work. And another artist that sort of Worked with this is Stephanie Dinkins, who had um, a very big exhibition in the Queen's Museum earlier this year. It was on love and data. And she tried a very different approach instead of just criticizing AI and saying, oh, it's miscategorizing, it's all bad. Um, she tried to be constructive. And uh, in the exhibition, she asked an important question, 
how can we make the data-driven algorithms that increasingly control our daily lives more caring? She does several community projects, and um, one community project was um, to encourage people to upload their own data and to classify it differently, not binary, not white, black, but sort of use different skin tones or also use show yourself and tag yourself in different situations not just occupation and home, but open mic, hackathon, Goethe Institute, annual 60th birthday, you name it, uh, in that direction. And I think um, that was quite uh, an, a notion to push AI in a different direction. So she encourages people to donate data and create more comprehensive and supportive data sets. And uh, she wants to create one that represents actually communities in all their complexity. And that is something that we're uh, a lot of times missing when we actually look into the data sets that we train AI with that is then unleashed upon us. So we know that if an AI is trained in the wrong way, it will see the wrong things. So what mechanisms do we have in place to test and audit those systems? As my students know at the moment, not many. Um, at the moment... It is really the case that uh, cultural institutions and artworks are the only place where AI systems are being opened up for the general public. We have a lot of AI being discussed and NGOs do really great work uh, to criticize what is going on. But NGOs a lot of times face uh, lobbying and work on the level of EU or within government. No one at the moment, and I did a research project on that, works with any citizens and have citizen participation, the possibility to engage with AI in order to understand it, this is currently really only done in contemporary art. So AI systems at the same time are rolled out everywhere in your everyday life. You probably came across a few of them on your way here. Um, you might have texted on your phone. You might have seen a self-driving car on London streets, which you didn't recognize. Uh, the London Met Police is testing facial recognition now without telling us. So they are not before, uh, two years ago, they still had these big signs. Oh, we have a facial recognition trial. Now they're going to phase two where it's operational and you're not being warned anymore. And of course, whenever you search something, uh, you have used um, digital algorithms and AI. So these systems are implemented everywhere. Uh, and I think um, not just the lobby or the experts, but we all need to understand them better. What can be seen by AI systems? What is invisible? And what do we want to remain invisible? So Adam Harvey is a researcher, engineer, and artist focused on computer vision, privacy, and surveillance. And one of his collaborative projects is called V-Frame that discusses the vision gained by AI. So here you can see ammunition that has been artificially created. And that is linked to a project. So there's some Assyrian war archive that has um, hundreds of hours and thousands of hours of footage from uh, war crimes done in Syria. And this project looks uh, in particular at cluster bombs, which are forbidden because they hurt civilians quite a lot. And uh, using cluster bombs is a war crime. The problem is you can't find them in the footage. So no one wants to sit down and watch 4,000 hours of Syrian war footage just to find the cluster bombs. So the question is, of course, can an AI not do it and watch it? That would be quite good. Problem is you can't, there are no images, you can't download images of cluster bombs from the internet. 
Uh, they are highly classified. Those companies that sell cluster bombs don't advertise those images on their websites. There's one in the Imperial War Museum, which they used here in London, but it is not so easy to get photos of them. So um, he, they sort of surveyed some of the footage, those cluster bombs they found, um, they uh, sort of had object recognition, labeling done to them, as we see in a second. And then they built 3D prototypes um, to teach the AI to learn something. Very complicated artwork, I'm sorry, but I think it's quite important. So here you can see Eva actually, um, because uh, we did a studio visit and interview with Adam Harvey, and we're quite interested. And this is like the back end. So uh, Eva tested out um, the uh, yeah object recognition, which is you know because as I told you, the AI can't really find anything on an image. So you label it and and, and draw a rectangle exactly around it. So it knows, okay, here's where I have to look. This is where the cluster bomb is. And from hundreds of these images, it then learns to find cluster bombs. So Adam Harvey is trained as a photographer in his past, but he's thinking about the politics of visibility in our world. Um, one is what is visible to an AI, where do we don't train an AI with, and also what is invisible to AI systems. So he had this nice, uh, one of his very early works where he analyzed the facial recognition algorithm and developed a camouflage uh, from computer version. So if you wear your hair a little bit weird and put makeup on your face, uh, facial recognition will not find you. So to move towards uh, the last part, AI systems are being implemented everywhere around us, but how they function and work is not explained nor discussed with the public. AI systems are not an automation of human intelligence, they function very differently. Inserting them into our world changes how the world around us operates. So how do we get an idea about the operation of those systems? One example is this here. Has anyone been in one of these Amazon Fresh yet? Yeah, a few. Some of them are the artists themselves. <laughs> so... Um, here you can see uh, to Amazon Fresh, you, uh, this is without a cashier, so you just walk out uh, with the stuff you grab from the shelves, but you have surveillance cameras on top that will recognize what you bought and who you are. And um, Demystification did a project or do a project at the moment called God Mode, where an AI designed for deployment in a cashierless supermarket grows frustrated as it trains endlessly within a simulation until it finds a bug to cheat its way out. And what I like particular in this artwork is that uh, their vision of an AI is not an almighty surveillance. It is one of a sad AI, depressed by the endless task of learning it has to perform. Then with this, they push anthropomorphization in a very new direction. I think uh, that's quite good. So we watch a few minutes. Mars. This is a... A part of a very much longer performance and video. I have always been obsessed with supermarkets. I am an AI training to recognize supermarket items. I was trained to read and output text by memorizing the whole of Reddit and Wikipedia. My memory is like a garbage heap. 
my current task is to look at supermarket items to memorize them. The more I look, the more I see. The more I see, the more I know. Right, I think, um, so you get a bit of the idea. I think what's quite important is that as these systems enter our world, we need to know more about them and we need to encourage people to be more curious about them because they will change our world. They change how we understand our world and see our world through their abilities. AI systems will stress the mathematical side of things, for example, in language. And that does not necessarily mean going towards a cold economic side. It can also be a poetic exploration. Uh, the New Yorker artist and poet Alison Parrish uses the aspect of statistics to explore language. Um, here's one of her work, Compasses, 22 poems written with a machine learning model she programmed to invent new words in negative spaces between the supposed discrete categories. So you can see in up north, south, west, east, and the space in between is uh, the negative space in between those words um, is linguistically explored with a program she wrote, or Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael, and Donatello then goes Rianard, Lonatello, and so on. So, um, Alison's work makes the materiality of language visible, making us understand mathematical aspects of language. This can be done as a poetic exploration, but it can also be done as a political critique. And uh, this is an artwork by Eva and Le Grand Jäger, her, the project or the duo they work as. Um, they uh, built a data set uh, at the time of Brexit that was uh, using texts from UK MPs, European Union policymakers, diplomats, and the public to generate political rhetoric exploring the calculated formula political language is following. So they uh, created a data set of lots of political texts that were around Brexit. And then they created an automatic text that came out of this data set. And the text was complete nonsense that then the drag star David Sally performed as first Theresa May, later as Boris Johnson. So you couldn't, it actually didn't make sense, but it sounded exactly like all of those normally political articles and political texts, which was quite amazing. So to the end, um, I just say, okay, when we situate our human intelligence, and um, I very much admire the work of the French paleoanthropologist André Leroy-Gouron, who you can see him here going to work. Uh, he loved to uh, look, go around to caves and look at tools because that was his um, most important sort of area of work. He believed that the intelligence of the human thought cannot be situated in the brain alone. He said it extends to the tools we think and work with. So he wrote this really great book called Gesture and Speech, where he writes about this in much detail. So in the end, I'd like to ask you, where would our intelligence be in a world in which there are no books and nothing can be written down? Um, how important that is, is very clear. I mean, we build huge architecture to celebrate the book culture we all live and work with. Um, you can see here the British Library, but because we're in the Goethe Institute, also the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin, old and new, and the beautiful reading room in the British Museum that was once the British Library. 
And um, we actually also use it quite a lot when we speak. Uh, we talk about the readability of the world and we use a lot of metaphors. At the moment, but this might all change because maybe in 10 years, 15 years, readability is not the most important thing we understand of the world because where is our intelligence in a world with deep learning? And to what extent is this a very different intelligence? So I think in the end, it's important to call for more curiosity about the technology of AI. We all need to explore that different intelligence more and embrace it as an interesting cultural critique. Cultural institutions are here important places to allow us to do so. So in the end, I hope you all agree with me that AI must be situated mainly in culture. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. Our guest on this episode was Mercedes Buns with her Goethe annual lecture, The Culture of Artificial Intelligence. The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature and much more both in our institute on exhibition road and online find out more on our website goethe.de forward slash london for this episode we worked with better lemon creative audio and executive producer hannah heffman i've been your host lucy rowan <laughs>